Well, good morning. Again, good to be with you. Uh, thanks for joining us today, whether you're here uh, in the room or you're joining us online. My name is Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at GFC. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet and you are joining us in week three of a series we're calling Overcoming Temptation, and this is the final week. So if you missed the first two, you can catch up by going to our YouTube page, watching there, or you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcast. You can listen along, and I would encourage you to do that. And the way we got here is we have this theme for the year called Hope Has a Name, and we believe that name is Jesus. And so one of the things we wanted to do is is we said, if that's what we believe is true, that Jesus is hope, and we want to share that with other people, we want to know who Jesus was. And so we decided to go to the book of Luke, and we decided we were going to look at what Luke had to say about Jesus, because what Luke writes in the gospel, the very first couple of verses, is that the person he's writing to, Theophilus, he wants Theophilus to know that he can be certain about the things that were taught about Jesus. So we said, well, if he wants Theophilus to be sure about the things he wrote about Jesus, he probably wants the same thing for us. And so we started this traveling through the book of Luke that we're going to go through throughout the year. And we're going to hit different times. We stop and we just have a certain conversation based on the information we see in Luke. And so we got to chapter 4 of Luke. And so Jesus is getting ready to go into his ministry. He's getting ready to do that for three years. And ultimately that three years would culminate with him dying and rising again. And so we, he gets there and he actually takes 40 days and goes into the wilderness to fast and to pray. And so a few things that become obvious, if you go into the wilderness to fast and to pray for 40 days, on the other side of that 40 days, you're going to be a couple of things and a couple of things are tired and hungry. And so Satan shows up in that moment and says, this is my chance. Now I can get Jesus before he actually starts his ministry. See, Satan knew, we're going to see this today. Satan knew what Jesus's aim was, and he knew what the prophets had spoken about Jesus. So Satan decides, this is my moment. If I can get him before his ministry ever starts, then I don't have to worry about this whole dying and rising again thing, right? He's not going to be the perfect sacrifice. I can take care of that. And so there's three main temptations that Satan shows up with. And so the last couple weeks, we looked at the first two, and then we're going to look at the last one today. But here's how we've kind of framed this conversation, because I know that as soon as we put the word temptation on the screen, you can go one of two ways. If you're a follower of Jesus, you would say probably, yep, I understand that I'm, I've been tempted, that I've sinned, that I've done wrong things. And so your relationship with temptation is a kind of an, un, an understood one, like you get that. If you're not a follower of Jesus and we bring up this idea of temptation, it can kind of rub the wrong way. Like who, who actually gets to say who's right and who's wrong and who can tell me what I'm doing is right and wrong? Like who gets to say that? And so temptation can be a little bit of a divisive word, but here's how I would want us to understand this. And here's how I think we can all engage on this topic. It would be this, who you are versus who you want to be is a struggle for everyone. And I don't want to harp on this because I've talked about this for a while. But you, but when we understand that who we are today isn't necessarily who we want to be, right? And that's not just a problem for people who know Jesus. Everybody everywhere would say, there are things about me that I wish I could improve. And so the, the, the friction we live in is whether or not we're going to invest in that and engage in that. So if you're someone that once says you want to run a marathon, you got to start running. If you're someone that wants to, you know... Summers, uh, like Pastor Andrew just said, like March is coming. So you want to lose like 25 pounds before summer, right? You got to start somewhere. So the question is, are we going to actually do it? Or are we going to say we're going to do it, but not actually take the steps to get it done? And here's the thing that I think is true. And this is where the idea of temptation comes in. If we were simply good people, 
that didn't have a sin problem, we would always do what we knew was healthiest and best for us. That would be the natural inclination. We would understand that this practice isn't healthy, so I need to stop. Or this practice is healthy, so I need to start doing it. And our motivation would simply be, yeah, that's best for me. I'm going to do that. Except here's the problem. And this is what Paul says in Romans 7.15. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Right? I set the alarm. I want to get up tomorrow. And then tomorrow morning comes. I don't do it. I want to run. But then the time comes to run, and I'd rather sit on the couch. He says, instead, I do what I hate. And this is a reality for everyone. Again, this isn't just some for people that follow Jesus. This is just for everyone. So why? Why do we get in, in this mode where we know what we should do, and yet we don't do it? And, and then we said this, that our identity will ultimately decide your response to temptation. And so the way we understand who we are is going to influence how we make decisions. If I am someone who wants to be a good dad, I'm going to make decisions that a good dad would make. If I want to be a good husband, I'm going to make decisions a good husband is going to make. And if I see myself as that, that's what I'm going to do. And so this comes down to just a, to a heart issue and not just an outcome issue. And so here's the question. And every week I've, I've come up with a question. I just said, this is how we're going to talk about this, okay? This is the question I want you to ask yourself. I'm going to ask myself as we go through this conversation. Here's the question for today. Who do you trust more? You or God? Who do you trust more? When it comes down to the end of the day, when you've got to make decisions, and I have to make decisions, and we've got to figure stuff out, who do we trust more? Do, I, do you trust you? Do I trust me? Or do we trust God? And this is the third temptation that Satan actually brings to Jesus, is this idea of trusting God. And so we're going to dive into Luke chapter 4 again. We're going to start uh, in verse 9. And if you'd like to follow along with us, uh, on the, you can go to our website, mygracefamily.church. You can get all the notes, uh, all the verses there. You can actually email them to yourself or send, yourself, uh, send them to yourself, and you can ask a question. You can submit a prayer request. You can scan that QR code, or it's right here on the back of the Next Steps card, too. Um, so if you want to catch up with all that stuff, you can uh, do that right there. But in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 9, this is what Satan says. So he's already been unsuccessful on two temptations. He tries this third one. It says, Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. Now, think about that for a minute. For many of us, you take us to a high building and just say, jump. Many of us are going to go, no, right? Not going to happen. Now, there could be some of us that are going, uh, if it was high enough and you're like base jumping and you've got a parachute, like there might be some of us that are tempted to do that. But this is, this is the temple at the time. It was high, but it wasn't that high. In fact, the way that Jesus' brother was killed was they took him to this exact spot and they threw him off. And he hit the ground, and he actually didn't die. They actually had to stone him. So it wasn't, it was high. It wasn't something you wanted to fall off of. But at the same time, it wasn't that high. It's not like a, you know, a skyscraper we would understand today. So this is a weird conversation to start with. Like why, why would Satan take him to a building and say, jump, and that's a temptation? But the real reason this is a temptation is the wording that Satan uses. And so we're actually going to put the verse up there again, but I highlighted one little two-letter word, and it's the word, if. You see, this was the challenge. This was the doubt that Satan was trying to bring into Jesus' mind. 
And Satan oftentimes, when he would have conversations, we see this in scripture, and he, he enters into a realm where he's going to tempt someone, he starts with a question like this. He did this to Eve in the garden. He starts off with, did God really say? Right? He gets that little bit of doubt. And so he shows up in this moment and he says, if you are the son of God, jump. If you really are who you say you are, and if God really is who he says he is, then why don't you just try it? See what actually happens. Again, remember, right before Jesus is going to go into his ministry, he's putting all... His vote, he's looking at life for the next three years and getting ready to do this thing that he's been prepared to do all this time. And he's thinking about, how is God going to work through me? And Satan gets in there with this, with this temptation. And, and we said this before, I think I said it week one, that sin always tries to drive a wedge between us and God. And Satan automatically hops in and he, st- he starts to drive this wedge. He says, if, if you really are who you say you are and God really is who you, he says he is, why don't you just try this. And the real question that Satan is asking is this, is God really on your side? I think, I know I have heard that question in my own heart too. Does God really have what's best for you in mind? Is God really doing what is best for you? Is he actually working this out for you? Like there's verses that say he works all out for good. So why is it so frustrating or bad right now? And I've heard that question. So Jesus hears this question. Is God really on your side? And going back to uh, verses 10 and 11 of Luke 4, Satan says this, For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now think about this for a minute. Did you expect this to be where Satan would go? Satan actually shows up and uses scripture to tempt Jesus. That feels a little weird. Because when you think about it, sometimes maybe we think like in the movies and cartoons and stuff, like when the, there's like a little angel and a little devil on somebody's shoulder, you know, and there's like, they're complete opposite. And so when Satan shows up and goes, here's the scriptures, this is how I'm going to tempt you. That feels a little funny. But he does, and he shows up and says, this is, this is the scripture, so why don't you see if it's, if it's true or not? And here's the thing about Satan, that Satan knows what buttons to push, And he even knows the scriptural ones to push. Satan's like, he studies and he understands situations and he gets in and he tries to get doubt and he tries to drive a wedge and he tries to do these things to get us to doubt who God is. He knows exactly when to show up and what to say. So he uses scripture to challenge Jesus's thought process. But Jesus responds in verse 12 and simply says this, and, it, and Luke just says, Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. So now all of a sudden we've got like this scriptural like ping pong or tennis match, right? Satan shows up, this is what this scripture says. Jesus comes back, this is what this scripture says. So here's what I want to do. I actually want to go to these two scriptures that they're both quoting. And kind of look at what's going on and, and why they both bring this up and why maybe this is the conversation that's being had. And so let's start with what, what Satan quoted. So he actually quotes Psalm 91. So if you want to turn there too, you can, or you, like I said, you can use the follow along. So in Psalm 91, we're going to start in verse 9. It says this in verses 9 and 10. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. 
verses 11 and 12. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. This is what Satan quoted. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Verse 13. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. Verse 14. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. In verses 15 and 16, when they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. So here's the question. Did Satan lie? No. He quoted the verse specifically. He said, Jesus, this is, this, is what's, this is what David wrote. So why don't you just make sure it's true? Why don't you just show up? And, and God promises some pretty amazing things here. Just to sum it up, God promises to rescue, honor, and reward those who love him. This is great. If, we, if I just came up and just started to preach this passage, this would be awesome. And we could just look at this and go, yeah, if we love God and we honor him with our lives, like this, we can look at this and glean some things from this and, and trust that God's going to show up in the moments when we need him too. So then why is this a problem? Or why does Satan use this verse to try and get at Jesus? And here's, here's what I know to be true, okay? One of the most important parts of a promise is the trust you place in the promiser. So here's what I mean by that. Uh, someone could show up to you today, tomorrow, whatever, and they would say, I promise you that I'm going to be at your birthday party, or I promise you that I'm going to be at your house on Friday, or I promise you, right, I'm going to do this. And there are certain people that you would go, dude, you don't even have to promise me that. I just, I get it, right? I trust you. And there are other people that you'd go, yeah, we'll see, right? You know, there's certain people that are going to show up and make promises, and you know they have to promise because they know the track record. There could be someone at work, and they would say, you know, you have a coworker, and if there's someone who always meets their deadline, and they say, I'll have this to you, I might even get, you, get it there early. You're going to go, great. And you're never going to think about it again until the day that it needs to be there. There's some people that say, I promise I'm going to get it to you by X date, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to go back to them every couple of days and be like, so you still good? Like, you still work? You still good? You need anything else? Like, you're going to check in with them because you don't trust them. Here's the challenge. Do we trust God at his word? This is what Satan's trying to get Jesus to do. Do you really think that when you need God the most, that he's going to show up for you? Or should you test the waters now before you get in too deep? That can happen to us too. Like, there's moments where we need to trust God deeply. And we think about it and go, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I trust him so much. And so Satan says to Jesus, why, why don't you just give it a shot? Why don't you just try it and just see if this is what you're getting him for? Do you really trust that God's going to show up in the way he says he's going to show up? So what's Jesus' answer? He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6. By the way, if you have time, we're only going to look at a handful of verses here. If you have time this week, go back and just read Deuteronomy 6. Because I'm going to tell you some things that it says, but I think you should go back and read it. So if you have time, like you're just, you know, you're, you need something to do for your devotions or your scripture reading this week, go back to Deuteronomy 6 and just read that chapter. 
But we're going to start in verse 16, and we're going to read through the first part of 18. So Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You must not test the Lord your God as you did when you, when you complained at Massa. You must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God, all the laws and decrees he has given you. In verse 18, this is where like the rubber hits the road. He says, Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so all will go well with you. That's one to kind of like take a picture of or like jot down somewhere or have put somewhere. Like this is very simple. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight and all will go well with you. Uh, last week, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, Pastor Andrew and I were having a conversation and every once in a while we have to have a conversation because he's doing seminary work right now. And so he gets an assignment where he comes and like interviews me and we have a conversation about certain things. And I, I don't remember exactly what the question was, but the idea of the question was, how do I uh, avoid the pitfalls that can come with leadership and ministry? And so we've all heard the stories of, of pastors who have failed, who have, uh, you know, done wrong things, or they've embezzled money, you know, they've sinned somehow, and they lose their ministry because of it, they abuse their power, all that kind of stuff. So he, he just asked me, how do I make sure that that doesn't become something I do? And I, I didn't quote this verse, but this was the idea I gave him. I just said, listen, when I, when I just focus on doing what's good and right, for lack of a better way of saying it, it keeps you out of trouble. And it's not like, I'm not saying I'm perfect, not saying I do everything right, not saying I never make a mistake. But at the same time, I, when I think about the way that I could make decisions and the places I could go and the things I could do and how that would just blow up life, it just, it actually gives me anxiety. Like, I'm like, I don't want to go to that place. I don't want to deal with those issues. I don't want to have to worry about putting those pieces back together. Like, I would rather just do what's right and good in the Lord's sight, and things will go well. And it doesn't mean that life will be easy. It doesn't mean life will be perfect, but it means that I won't have the consequences of poor decisions and giving into temptation. And so Jesus quotes this and says, this is, this is the idea. I'm not going to test God. I'm just going to do what's right and good and expect him to keep his promises. That's how I'm going to live this out. And one of the cool things, this is why I want you to go back to, to this chapter later, is because one of the things that actually comes up in Deuteronomy 6 is they ask the question, or they, they pose the question, what do you tell your children when they look at you and say, why do we follow God? So when you're raising kids, and those of us who have kids, we understand this. Like they always, they ask, why do I have to do this, right? Why is this the rule I have to follow? Why do we, why do we have to go to church on Sunday, right? Why do we do these things? He says, the answer you're supposed to give them is because of what God has done in your life. And, and the reason that these guys in, in Deuteronomy 6, the reason they're supposed to give their children that answer is because they rescued them. He rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And so they look at that and they go, look at the way God has shown up in your life and share that with the people around you. Use that as evidence for why you can trust him and why we live life to honor him and allow him to then step in and fulfill the promises he makes to us. And so this is, this is the way I said this. I understand that this phrase, actually, when you see it, it's already outdated. I probably should have wrote it a little bit differently, but here's the way I said it. Overcoming temptation means trusting God's map, even when your GPS is telling you something different, okay? So most of us are old enough to understand what an actual, like, GPS was, that all it did 
was just told you where to go, right? Now, now most of the time, we would just use our phone and just kind of, you might have a thing in your car to like put that on. So I could have said, overcoming temptation means trusting God's map, even when Google Maps or even when Waze tells you something different, right? I could have updated there, but I didn't. But here's the way I think about this, okay? Um, there's a very famous episode of The Office, where Michael and Dwight are driving somewhere, okay? And if you're an Office fan, you already know where I'm going with this. And so Michael and Dwight, if you haven't seen the show, they're two of the main characters. Michael is driving, and Dwight's in the passenger seat. And the GPS is telling them where to go. And it tells them to turn right. And Michael says, okay, I guess I have to turn right. Dwight looks to the right and says, that's not a road, that's a lake. And Michael says, the GPS is telling me to turn right. I have to turn right. And so Dwight says again, there's no road here. Don't go in the lake. Michael drives in the lake, right? Because he keeps listening to the GPS. And so they end up in the lake, and there's a very funny scene where they have to pull themselves out of the car and get out, and it's a whole thing, right? Here's why I think about it this way. God has given us a map. It's, It's called Scripture, And so when we look at that, the challenge is, it's a 2,000-year-old map. Now, I get, if I handed anyone a 2,000-year-old map and said, here's how you get to Florida, none of you would use that map. So when we look at that logically, we go, can a 2,000-year-old map actually help us get through life today? And one of the reasons I think we ask that question is because our inner GPS or our inner Google Maps or our inner ways is saying, no, I want to go this way. I should make this turn. I want this over here that doesn't match up with the map God gave me. And the temptation is that we would follow that leading rather than understanding and trusting the person who created the map and created the world and sustains life in the first place. And so sometimes when we have to overcome temptation or we have to address this idea of being tempted, we have to trust the map even though it's older than we'd like to trust it and its ways aren't always exactly as we would think or it doesn't seem to match up with culture and say, this is what God is telling me. And I know that if I trust my own instincts, I'm going to drive into a lake. I'm going to drive where I shouldn't go. And, and interestingly enough, in this analogy, I don't know that I would associate Dwight with the Holy Spirit, but at the same time, like, he's kind of the one saying, don't go there. And the Holy Spirit's yell, telling us, right, if we, if we follow or follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit's saying, don't do that. And we have to listen and say, we understand that that's not the way God wants us to go. And so the ultimate question, too, is this, what, what does God have to prove to you? What does God have to prove to me for me to look at the map, for me to look at what God has taught me, for me to look at what he's laid out for me and say, I'm going to trust you even when my instincts and my flesh says, I want to go a different way. And sometimes this question boils down to what we think we deserve. And honestly, I think, this is the way I say it, the gap between what we deserve and what we receive is bigger than we think. And here's what I mean by that. I believe all humans have human rights, right? So we all have the right to clean water, to food, to shelter, to clothing. I think we should all want that and provide that for people that don't have it and all those kinds of things. Here's the thing that happens, though, is we tack on a lot of things extra to that. And we tack on a lot of things that God actually doesn't promise. Like like we would tack on, I deserve to be happy in life. Maybe. But I don't know that that's going to be every day. 
right? I, I'll just be honest, right? I wasn't happy on Monday, okay, after watching the Super Bowl, okay? Just reality. So every day of life is not just going to work out the way you want it to. There are things extra that we put there. And so what we deserve, right? Maybe we think we deserve to be married or to find someone to do life with. We deserve someone to treat us a certain way. And sometimes we're right, right? We all deserve dignity. But here's what we forget. If you woke up like me, you woke up in a warm bed, in a house that keeps you dry when it rains, you get to go outside, and, and if you own a home or you own you know, your own land, you get to go outside and sit on your patio, play with your kids, have your neighbors over, that kind of thing. I, I get to get in my truck and drive it wherever I want to go. I get to plan my vacations and go on vacation sometimes and take that. Right? We, we have these abilities and these things that God has ultimately blessed us with, but we don't see it that way. We see it sometimes as the rights that we deserve to have. And we forget that everybody doesn't have that. Maybe some of the things I just said, you, you're thinking, I wish I had that, right? And that means I should say that that's a blessing that God has given me. And does that then show me that God has provided for me? Or do I look at those things and go, oh, those are just the things I'm supposed to have? See, the challenge there is, is, is huge. To see what I actually deserve and what I understand, if I'm really understanding myself the right way, is I deserve punishment for the sin that I do, for the ways I haven't overcome temptation and the decisions I have made where I've gone the wrong way. And yet Jesus says, I'll give you the right to become an heir in my family. I didn't deserve that. And so the gap between what I deserve and what I've actually received is much larger than I think. And in all of those ways, I should look at God and say, that's him blessing me and giving me something I didn't deserve. And understanding that that's him showing up in my life. And so here's how I want to wrap up kind of this conversation in this series a little bit. I haven't done a ton of, here's how to overcome. Like like actual, like, okay, you're in the moment and, Here's what you got to do. I want to do a, a little bit of that. And there's one more passage I want to go to because I think it actually matches up perfectly with what Jesus had to go through in his temptation, okay? So the last question is this. How do we overcome temptation? How do we actually do this? And what does that look like? The passage I want to go to, and we're just going to look at the first three verses, is Romans 12, okay? So Romans 12 is where you can go. We're going to start in verse 1. It says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Stop. Let's read that again. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. If we sat and made a list of all that God has done for us, I think we would sit here for a very long time. That's the motivation to say, look at what God has done for me, right? Satan's tempting Jesus and he's going, really, has God done this for you? And Jesus' resounding answer is absolutely. And so when Satan comes in and tries to tempt us and say, did God really say, if, he re- if you really are a child of God, if this is really what he said, right? No, no, no. Like, like, I've got the list. I've got the receipts for how much God has done for me. So let's keep going. He says, let them... 
be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And if you remember, the very first temptation that Jesus encountered was Satan showing up and saying, why don't you just turn that rock into bread? That was a temptation because Jesus didn't bring snacks on this retreat for a reason, right? He was supposed to be focused on fasting and praying and growing in his relationship with God. And Satan showing up and going, here, just make some bread. I know you're hungry, was to shift him away from his focus and to get Jesus to provide for himself when he was supposed to be relying on God and, and, and investing in that relationship at that moment. And so here's here's the first thing I think we need to do if we're going to overcome temptation. The first thing is this. Submit your physical needs to God. This is true in that conversation because Jesus had to submit his hunger to God. He had to say, no, I'm not going to allow Satan to come in and tempt me to do this. I'm going to keep my focus on God. He'll, He'll bring the next meal. He'll be the one to provide it. And the challenge I gave us that week was that we would evaluate our eating habits, our exercise habits, and our sexual habits, and how that relates to our identity in Jesus. Because listen, how we steward our physical bodies is a reflection of what our identity is in Jesus. How I respond to the urges and the needs that my physical body has is a reflection of my identity in Jesus. And sometimes we disconnect those things. But they're a reality, right? How I care for the body God has given me says something about how I think I should use it in the mission he has given me. And so we have to submit our physical needs to God. If you've got a temptation, you're at the office with someone else, right? Marriage at home is rough. There's someone else there to fulfill some of the needs you feel like aren't being needed, right? There's that moment of, should I invest in that relationship? The answer is no, if you, your physical needs are given to God. Right? He's the one who gives you the roadmap on how to do it. Yeah, but they're not filling my needs, and this is the way that I feel like I need to go. And this person's right here, and they care about me, and they're having the conversation. So the GPS is saying, go this way. You're driving into a lake, right? Stay on the map. Submit your physical needs to God. And so Paul says, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Submit your physical needs to God. Here's what verse 2 says in Romans 12. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Here's why we would copy the behavior and customs of this world. It's because we want this world to accept us. That's why. We, we follow those rules. We would become accustomed to those things. We would do those things the way that they would do them. Why? Because we want the world's affirmation. But here's the way we have to understand this. If we're going to overcome temptation, here's number two. We have to receive our affirmation from the right place. And again, go back to Jesus' second tempting. Satan takes him to the high place, shows him all the kingdoms, and says, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll give you all the power and the influence right now. You don't have to worry about dying for anyone. They'll just accept you right now. And Jesus knew that he had to suffer before God would give him the glory that was coming. So Satan's trying to give him a shortcut. And he says, no, I'm not living for the affirmation of people. I'm living for the affirmation of God. 
And so when we receive our affirmation from the right place, when we receive our affirmation from God, we won't chase things that get us affirmation from the world but take us away from God. Give you another example, right? If you're chasing after the work life and the raise and the things, right, and your family at home is suffering because they don't have the same investment that your work is seeing, we're getting our affirmation from the wrong place. And when we, when we get our affirmation from God, he says, I've given you this family. Your role is to be there in this family. That's where you need to be. Then we fulfill what Jesus is calling us to, and we worship him in that way. Here's the third thing. Romans 12.3 says this. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. So number three is this, trust God completely. I've used this example before. I'll probably use it again because it's simple and it's the best way I can think about it. When I think about, and I think you would say the same, when you think about, and even, even people that are super uber successful, like the most rich people in any field, wherever, they've done all the things. If we sat down with them and we said, have you done every single thing right in your life or in your business or in your entrepreneurial stuff, right? Have you done everything right? They'd go back and they'd go, no, I wish I had done this or I made this mistake once or I did that, right? And if we all sat around and we had a conversation, we go, how successful are you at always being perfect at taking care of the little postage stamp size of the universe that God has given you authority over? How successful are we at making sure that's always in good shape? We would all go, I got some bad days. I'm not always super good at that. And so when we're honest with ourselves, we go, I make mistakes all the time. I do, I do make wrong turns and I make mistakes. So then why do we not trust God? Why do we put ourselves in that place and go, I'm going to trust what I say rather than what he says? And what Paul says in, chat, in verse 3 says, I give you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are honestly evaluate yourself and trust God. And so even Jesus, even Jesus, right, submitted himself to the Father and said, I'm going to trust him. I'm not going to test him. I'm not going to doubt him. I'm going to live in the calling that he's given me and trust that he's going to show up when I need him, not when I just tell him to jump. Because here's what I know about that temptation, right? Let's just go back to the same one for today. If I took us to a high building and I said, here's Psalm 91, we're all going to jump. You guys would go, you're nuts, right? We know that's not the way that that's supposed to be fulfilled. But that we're supposed to trust God in the moments we truly need him. He's going to show up for us. And so when we trust him, that's what we do. And this is the thing I think about these three things. I think any temptation could fall under these three categories. So if we've got a problem with a physical fulfillment we're chasing, we've got to submit our physical needs to God. If it, we've got a problem with receiving the affirmation or doing something to get the approval of people we're not supposed to be chasing, we have to get our affirmation from God. If we're just doing something or not doing something that we're supposed to, and we're supposed to change and understand that this isn't the roadmap God gave us, we just have to trust him. I think all temptation falls into one of these three categories. So when you get to a temptation and you go, what is it I have to do about this? Figure out one of these three. Which, which one do I have to do? Which one is the motive I have to take right now? And one of the hardest things about sin 
is the payoff in the moment seems so much better than what would be coming later. And I actually found this quote in a book I was reading. Um, it's by a guy, okay, I, I forgot to ask my wife. My wife took French in high school, and she would know how to say this name, and I don't know how to say this name, but I think it's Friedrich Bassier, I think is how you say it. He says this, it almost always happens that when the immediate consequence is favorable, the later consequences are disastrous, and vice versa. By the way, I don't think he was a follower of Jesus. I think he was just evaluating life. But this is true when it comes to temptation, isn't it? The immediate payoff seems great. Yeah, I'm going to get what I want. But what are the consequences that are coming later? And so we have to have this understanding of I'm living for something that's not just right now. I'm living as a child of God for the eternity that's coming later. So here's the question for you, and this is, this is where we've got to do some self-evaluation. What is your greatest temptation right now? And how are you going to overcome it? For some of us, when we walked into this conversation a couple weeks ago, or you walked into today, immediately that idea of temptation, overcoming temptation, there's something that came to your mind. And you thought, that's the thing I'm dealing with. That's the problem I'm having. So the question is, how are we going to overcome it? And how are you going to evaluate it by those three things we just had up on the screen and say, this is, this is how I need to step into this. I need to submit to God, or I need to get my affirmation from God, or I just need to trust him and do what he's telling me. Because I'm not submitting myself to God right now. And ultimately, I gave you this question a couple weeks ago. What would a child of God do? In those moments where we hit temptation, if our identity is a follower of Jesus, a child of God. The question is, what would a child of God do? And how am I going to live that out, even in the midst of temptation? That's what Jesus did. What would a child of God do? What would the Son of God do in this moment? And Jesus chose correctly. And it gives us a perfect roadmap of how we can tackle temptation. I don't usually do this, but I actually want to end uh, with a verse. And Dan, you can come up and, and start playing behind me if you'd like. I want to end with a verse just to kind of put a bow on this and help us understand that even though we are sinful people, how God sees us. And in Ephesians chapter 2, I just want to read verses 8, 9, and 10. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. It says, you, we are not the ones who just do all the good things. And our salvation is not based on how good we are. But verse 10 goes on and says this, For we are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Like, here's the hard part. When, when temptation does get in and we screw up, we don't feel like a masterpiece we feel like a screw-up. But God still says, you're my masterpiece. And he says, I've created you anew in Christ Jesus. So the old us is gone, the sin and death. He says, now make the decision to be the new, to be in Jesus, to follow him, and make that the desire of your heart. We're always going to deal with temptation. It doesn't go away. 
We all have to decide what we're going to do in those moments when temptation shows up. And the question is, are we going to look like a child of God or are we going to look like we just want to do what we want? Are we going to trust him or are we just going to do what we want? But scripture tells us we've been created anew and we're God's masterpiece. And I would encourage us to live out of that space of, look at all that God has done for me. And so I offer myself to him. I'm not going to chase my own desires. I'm going to chase his. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story of Jesus and the blueprint it gives us for how he dealt with temptation. We thank you that he understands what it's like to feel temptation, that we don't have a savior that just doesn't get it or doesn't feel what we feel or understand what we go through, but he, he totally understands it. And he was willing to deny himself and submit to you and say he was going to trust you above all things. And I pray that we would do the same. That even when our desires are to go against you, to find our affirmation in other places, to fulfill our desires in ways that aren't what you've called us to, that we would remember who we are, that we're your masterpiece at all the things you've done for us and we would offer our bodies as sacrifices to you. I pray for anyone right now in this room that's going through a very specific temptation or, or trial or whatever it might be that you would give them the motivation, the tools they need to say, I'm, I'm going to overcome that. I pray that they would do that through you, not through their own power, but that you would show up and give them the ability to respond in a way that you would call them to respond ask that ultimately we would reflect that we are your children in the ways that we act each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.